Just before we come to the preaching of God's word today, let's stand as we commit our way to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our eternal heavenly Father, as we come now at this juncture in our service of worship to the preaching of the word, we come to thee, O Lord, and we cast ourselves at thy mercy, and we pray, O God, that we are trusting thee, and we are depending upon thee, for we need thee even now to come, and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, to open up thy word, and to apply thy word to every heart gathered. We need thee, O God, for we are but flesh. Lord, we are incapable of opening up the word of God and, and of understanding it and of doing anything with it, even of reading it, even of singing it. Oh, without the help of thy spirit, surely it is all in vain. And Lord, we pray this morning that our service would not be in vain. We pray now, O Lord, that thou would come, that every heart would be still in thy presence, that every mind would, mind would be attuned to thy word and to the operations of thy spirit, that as thy word is preached, there would be truly a word and season to every heart. Thou knowest the needs of every heart, O Lord. Thou canst read the thoughts. Thou knowest those who are downcast and discouraged, those who are ill, those, Lord, who are suffering affliction in body, Thou knowest those, O Lord, who are wandering away from Thee, those who are in error. Thou knowest those, O Lord, who are walking with Thee and who are rejoicing as they walk. Whatever the circumstances of the heart, O Lord, Thou knowest them every one. And so now, Lord, we pray that every heart would be made bare unto Thee, that every soul would be naked and open unto Thee, and that Thy word would be taken and even as the frail efforts of man would present the word of God, we pray that it would come with power and in demonstration of God the Holy Ghost, and that thou would apply it to every heart. Be with the preacher. Thou knowest the frailty, the infirmity, the inadequacies. O oh Lord, we pray that thou would touch these lips with that live coal from off the altar of God. Come, Lord, then we pray. Sanctify us, every one. If there's any outside of Christ, search them out and give a word and season for their hearts. Regenerate them by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the word. Lord, we pray that thou would come and that thy cause would advance this day. Close us in now with thyself, we pray. And we plead it all before thy throne, in and through your Saviour and thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, turn back to that passage in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. We will consider as our text this morning the first two verses of this chapter. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. What we have in the Bible is an inspired record of the history of the cause of Christ in the world. From the very opening words to the very close of the book of Revelation, we have that unfolding of God's purpose, of his plan of redemption. We have that continuity running from in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right through to the end when we say, come Lord Jesus. And when we think of the beginning of the world, how small those days were. The world began with only two humans both of whom were in communion with God. The Church of Christ occupied the entire human race. And then those two humans fell from that condition in which they were created by sinning against God. And now we have the entire world corrupted and not a single human in communion with God. 
But as we know from the history of the world, God saved them and God brought them into communion and God made a way of access available to them. And so we find ourselves back again with small beginnings, only two people in the entire church of Christ walking on the face of the world, suffering, struggling through indwelling sin, but in communion with God. We know from the history of the world that that state did not last long within a generation. Within a generation, the people of God were in a minority once again. And so it seems to be, all through the events of history, as the cause of Christ advances from that position, and as it grows, and as it spreads, and as it becomes stronger, time after time it seems that we find ourselves back at the very beginning again. It happened to Abraham. We think of Abraham with as much substance. We think of how he had grown, how he had developed, how he had spread across that land of Ur, the Ur of the Chaldees. And then God calls him out of that to a foreign land, a land where he had nothing other than what he could carry and what his train was able to bring with him. We think of Abraham there as a stranger in a foreign land, in the minority, small times. Was Abraham back at the very beginning again? We think of the time when Jacob was leaving Laban. We think of the time when Joseph was being sold into Egypt as a, as a slave with nothing. We think of that cavalcade, that, that, uh, that uh, move from, of Jacob from the land of Canaan, from the promised land, down into Israel in the time of famine leaving everything behind, leaving the land of Canaan behind and going into a land in which they were strangers. It always seems in the accounts of history, time after time after time, from our vantage point, looking at it, it looks as though we're always back at the very beginning again. Here we come to Joshua. In the beginning of the book of Joshua, and there have been big events that have taken place in Joshua's life. Big things have happened in the cause of Christ during Joshua's lifetime. Joshua, of course, was born into slavery in Egypt. There he was when Moses was rising up through the ranks. When he was becoming increasingly more important in the government of Egypt. There he was when, when the people of God were in crisis, in slavery in Egypt. He was there when Moses led those people out of their bondage in Egypt. It was triumphant days for the church of God. When the Egyptians were destroyed at the Red Sea. Great days. Days of advance. Days of success. But he was there when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. When that wandering for an entire generation, when it seemed, when it seemed to all who looked on that the cause of Christ was back at the very beginning again. Wandering for an entire generation, all of the old guard dying off. And we come to Joshua 1 then and we have to ask the question. Are we here again? Are we, are we back at the very beginning? It seems like we are. It seems like all of the progress has been lost. It seems that the cause of Christ in Joshua 1 verse 1 is no further forward than it was 40 years ago. That's how it looks. With verses 1 and 2 as our text, then we'll take this question as our title. Are we back at the very beginning again? Are we back at the beginning? When we look across the church today and the cause of Christ today, does it look to us as though in many ways the cause of the gospel in this land is back at the very beginning? I trust from these verses with God's help as he enables that what we will see is that although God uses mighty instruments, such as Moses. Although he uses mighty instruments to do his work, they are only instruments. 
And whenever he takes one instrument away, he has already prepared another to take its place. And we'll see that his work continues without any stop, without any break, without any intermission. And that God's purpose remains unchanged and that his work continues to progress. Let's look at this then this morning as we ask this question and seek to answer it. Are we back at the beginning again? And the first thing we want to look at in verse 1 is new instruments. God has new instruments. We read there now, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister. In many ways, here is a scene of solemnity. We've had the exodus, yes, but it's a dim and distant memory now for these people. For 40 years they've been wandering. You think of all that has taken place in the history of, that, of, the, of those people that came out of Egypt. All of the great things that happened, all of the miracles that happened, the, the dividing the plagues, the dividing of the sea, the wiping out of the Egyptian army, all those wonderful things, manna from heaven, water from a rock. But now, now Aaron, the high priest, is dead. Now Moses is dead. Are we back at the beginning again? You see, this is not the end. We see, yes, that Moses was the servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Let's think about Moses for just a moment. Moses was God's instrument. He was born in adverse circumstances. Moses should have been slaughtered the moment he was born. He should have been thrown in the river and drowned. That's what ought to have happened to him. That's what was happening to all the other baby boys of his generation. But yet we had this remarkable deliverance. This remarkable providence. Being discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Being taken to uh, to his own mother to be nursed on behalf of Pharaoh's daughter, being taken into the Egyptian palace and brought up as one of Pharaoh's family. Now at that moment in time, a remarkable providence, yes, it's easy for us to look back at it, but at that moment in time, God's people did not see any evidence of deliverance. They were not thinking of deliverance, they were only thinking of survival. Moses' mother was not thinking of the exodus when she put Moses into that ark of, in the bulrushes. She was thinking of staying alive, of saving her son. And all through that first 40 years of Moses' life, growing up in the Egyptian palace, there was no evidence, no outward evidence at all that there was going to be any deliverance for God's people. 40 years. While Moses was growing into adulthood, 40 years the people of God suffered. They suffered in bondage. They suffered in affliction. And there was no hint, not the slightest hint, not a word from the Lord. There was nothing, no tokens, no tokens from God that there was going to be a coming deliverance. But all along that time, that 40 years, not to mention the almost 400 years that had gone before, all through that time, that 40 years, what was happening? God was working. He was working in the life of Moses. Moses was being schooled. He was being trained. He was, he was learning all the political knowledge of the courts of Egypt. He was developing leadership qualities as he was brought up as one of Pharaoh's own family. But all along, it was all out of view. It was behind the scenes as far as the cause of Christ is concerned. And then disaster seems to strike. Moses had that error of judgment. You know, he slayed an Egyptian. He realized that he was discovered. And there goes Moses in the providence of God into 40 more years of exile in Midian. <clears throat> Forty more years. This is 80 years of suffering. From the day that Moses was born, 80 years with not even a blink, not a hint, not a word, that deliverance was on the way. There was no reasonable prospect of deliverance. But unknown 
to the suffering Israelites while Moses is in the wilderness of Midian and the people of God are suffering back in Egypt unknown to them Yahweh the great God of heaven was appearing to Moses in the burning bush and he was giving him a message of deliverance in the wilderness of Mount Sinai where an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush appeared to Moses. But still, God's people can see none of it. It was this same Moses then who came back, and we know the story, we know the account and history, the plagues, all the experiences that took place there. And Moses led them out of bondage in Egypt. They were delivered. Remarkable. And when the, deliverance, when the deliverance came, it came suddenly. It came quickly. It came rapidly. Who would have thought that they would have been emancipated when a few years before their children were being slaughtered? But it was 80 years in the preparing and all of it out of sight. Now Moses was a remarkable man. There's no doubt about that. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and in deeds. So Stephen says in his sermon in Acts 7, Moses had been schooled in all the wisdom of Egypt. He had access to the Egyptian courts. He could simply walk in and appear before Pharaoh. He knew, you see, he knew all the protocols. He knew all, how it all works. He had all the right connections. He was recognized in the courts of the land. He was a remarkable man, but he was only the servant of the Lord. He was only an instrument in God's hand. And now God's word says in verse two, the beginning of verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. He was only the servant of the Lord for all that. Raised up by God, raised up in God's purpose, but now he is dead. But Moses, of course, knew he was going to die, and he prayed. In Numbers 27, we read of Moses' prayer. Numbers 27, 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. See, it wasn't all about Moses at all. It was about the Lord's people, and Moses knew that. But God answered his prayer. Verse 18 in Numbers 27, we read God's response. Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun. So Moses was a servant of the Lord, and Joshua was God's appointment. We read it came to pass, back in Joshua 1, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister. And what we're seeing here in these simple words is just as God raised up Moses before him, now he had also raised up Joshua. Moses was 80 years in training just for that moment in which he led the Israelites out of Egypt. That was the pinnacle, the peak. That was the key purpose that God had in Moses' life. There were other things, but that was the primary role that he would have. When we think back of Moses, that was his thing. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now we have Joshua. And as we read here, Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua was 80 years of age. Joshua has been 80 years in training for this moment. For the moment in which he will lead the children of Israel over Jordan into the land of promise. Joshua received very different training from Moses. And he was being prepared for a very different task than what Moses had. But the two of them, all of the circumstances, all of the preparation, it was God's preparation. It was God. Joshua is described here as Moses' minister. It's a different word that was used in the first verse of Moses being the servant of the Lord. The idea behind the word minister used in our passage is that of an honourable secretary. A senior aide, you could say, or one who was the confidant or the advisor 
of a noble or a king. It's used of those who are trusted. Uh, he's in a senior position. So where no Moses had been schooled in all of the intricacies of the machinery of the Egyptian government. And then he was taken for 40 years into exile and he was schooled and trained in all the geography of the wilderness that he would spend so long leading the children of Israel around. So here we see that Joshua was being trained for these 80 years and especially the last 40. He was being trained in the mechanics of Israelite government and warfare and worship. He was taught how to lead the Israelites in battle. We have that in Exodus 17. We read there that Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. There was a battle. There weren't too many battles for the children of Israel up until the time when they came to possess the land. But there was a battle here with Amalek. And Joshua led them out in battle. He was being trained, you see. He was being trained as a chief of staff for the Israelite army. On that same occasion, he was also trained how to depend on the Lord for victory. For in verse 14 of Exodus 17, we read, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Joshua prevailed in battle because Moses prayed. They depended on the Lord. And God said to Moses, why? Why? Who was the lesson for? It was for Joshua. He says, write this in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Because he was preparing Joshua. He was training him. He was also trained how to deal with discipline among the people. It was Joshua who said in Exodus 24... That he heard the noise of the, of the people when they were coming back down the Mount Sinai. And he could hear the dancing and the music. It, Joshua heard the noise of the people. And we know what happened next. It made a golden calf. They were dealt with. They were dealt with severely by God through Moses. And so Joshua was dealt with how, or was trained in how to deal with discipline among the children of Israel. He was trained how to worship God. In Exodus 33, 11, we read, But his servant Joshua, Moses' servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. But it was Joshua who was there when Moses went up into God's presence. Whenever Moses was going up into Mount Sinai, we read that Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the Mount of God. Joshua has been prepared all along. This is really the point to see from this verse today. That just as God had prepared Moses. And had raised him up for the specific purpose of leading God's people out of Egypt. As God's instrument. So he had prepared and raised up Joshua. For the specific purpose of leading God's people over Jordan. And into the possession of the land. Joshua was just a new instrument. By surveying the church today, I think we can see parallels, not just in our own denomination here, but right across the Reformed Church. Does it not look, men and women, as though we are back at the very beginning? Isn't that how it looks? The old men are dying. The old stalwarts of the faith, the men of principle, the godly men who have held the line in the service of Christ, they're dying. Our numbers are, are depleting. We have vacant pulpits. It looks to us as though we have sheep without shepherds. It looks to our human eyes as if all of that reform and all of that progress and all of that work, it looks as though it has all been lost. It looks as though we're back at the beginning. Doesn't it? But friends, this morning, this is God's work. It's not the work of his instruments. It's not the work of the old men that have gone before. 
Just as he raised up Moses all those years out of sight, behind the scenes, all those years in the least likely place for deliverance to come, in the very courts of Pharaoh. And just as he worked for all those years in training Joshua, one born into the service of the Lord, so God is working now. God is raising up. He is developing. He is preparing. He is molding. And it's all been done out of our view. We can't see it, but it's happening. God charting the course for his church. The cause of Christ continuing, going on. Yes, we have old instruments being set down and we have new instruments being taken up. As old instruments finish their task, new instruments embark on theirs. But the point is this, they are only instruments. And they're all instruments that are being worked in the hand of God himself, the master craftsman. Here he raises up a political instrument. Over there there's an evangelist. Maybe we have a servant who is wrestling in prayer. Maybe we have another one who's wealthy, benefactor for the church. Supporting God's cause. But in all of it, they are all instruments together in God's hands. And God is building his church. So we see new instruments. But we also have in verse 2, no intermission. We read there, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people. Just remember the scene that we have here. Put yourself in the shoes of one of the children of Israel. Moses is dead. The great Moses. I hear Joshua has been appointed. There's a sense in which there's tension in the air. What's going to happen? We're holding our breath. What's going to happen now? Is it all over? You know, when they came out of Egypt, there was so much hope. There was so much expectation. And now they've reached this low day in the history of Israel. Things look abysmal. Look at it religiously. None of the people here, none of the men are circumcised. They haven't had the Passover the whole time they've been wandering in the wilderness. The means of grace in many ways have been withheld. It looks now as if they're in a worse state than they were 40 years ago. But instead of Moses' death being a cause for despair, here it's presented to us as the catalyst, the catalyst to keep going, the very reason to keep going. <clears throat> Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Just two things to see here. It's a call. It's, a, it's God's call to Joshua. And he calls Joshua to continue. Now, therefore. I notice that God's word to, to the children of Israel, it doesn't miss a beat. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Now, the now is significant. It's really speaking to us of a, of a seamlessness. There is actually no break in God's work between Moses dying and Joshua continuing. The idea it's not really necessarily one of time. We're not talking about the length of time. That's not what's in view. Well, they've just been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It looks like time is not really what's in view. What we've got here, rather, is the point of continuity. That's the point. There's no stopping. There's no intermission. There's no break in the work of God. Now, all along, God's work has been progressing. Even when it looked like they were back at the beginning, God's work kept going on. Whenever they were languishing in bondage in Egypt, God's work was going forward. Whenever Moses was leading them out of Egypt and they were triumphant, God's work was going forward. While they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and yes, that was as a result of their own sin, their own unbelief. Yet even then, God's work was going forward. Friends, there was no intermission. There was no break. There was no stopping. God's work was going forward. Indeed, as we read these words, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. It's as if that Moses dying was itself part of the progress. 
We see that because God had said that there would be no entering into the land. There's going to be no going into the land of Canaan until that entire generation that came out of Egypt is dead, except two men, <coughs> Joshua and Caleb. And now Moses, my servant, is dead. He was the last one to die. And now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan. There's a sense in which Moses had to die. But the point is, keep going. And the other thing is that God calls Joshua to courage. The command that he gives here is arise. And the word arise has that thought of standing courageously. We get that from the context of what follows. Time after time, uh, Joshua is told to be strong and of a good courage. That's the key thought. Arise, Joshua. Let the people arise. Let them stand courageously. This is not a time for shrinking back. It's a time for pressing on. You see, the people that were gathered here around Joshua, these were a people who were prone to losing heart. Losing heart was the serious threat that faced them. That's the temptation that's now facing the people. They're a feeble people. They're a fickle people. They are prone to losing heart. Think about it. When their burdens were increased by Pharaoh, what did they do? They lost heart. Moses had come to deliver them. Their burdens were increased. They were ready to give up. Whenever they stood on the shore of the Red Sea and they looked back and saw the Egyptians coming, they lost heart. We read that when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. After that, they lost heart in the wilderness because they had no food. They lost heart because they had no water. They lost heart at Sinai because Moses seemed to be taken too long. Whenever the spies reported sightings of giants in the land of promise, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. They lost heart. This was a people who lost heart. This was a fickle people. They were prone to fear, and they were prone to discouragement. Friends, this morning, this was a people just like us. And so the call to Joshua as the leader of the people is a call to continue and it's a call to courage. Arise, take heart, stand firm and keep going. There is no intermission in the work of God. There's an important lesson for us from the east coast of the banks of Jordan here today. It's not only true that the work is God's work, we've seen that, but now we see that it is a work that never stops. There is no going backwards. There is no going down. There is only onwards and upwards. That's the only directions God's work can go in. It's not geared to go in any other direction. There is no going backwards. Now God uses many instruments. God uses men. He uses women. He uses children. He uses the events in our country, in the world. He uses the circumstances of our life. He uses the circumstances of a congregation. He uses high days. And he uses low days. But if we could put it like this, God's hand is never empty. He is always using instruments. He's using instruments we can't see. He's using instruments we don't want him to use. And he uses instruments that we do. Now see, we may experience life, in our conception of time, we experience life as a series of episodes. One episode after another. If you were to uh, given a piece of paper and told to jot down your life story on one piece of paper, you would probably have several bullet points. Episodes in your life that mark out your life. And when we think of the history that's recorded for us in the Bible, we think of it of a, as a series of episodes in history. But in reality, the work of God is one continuous, seamless flow of history. It's not a sequence of episodes. It's that continual unfolding of God's eternal decree. There is no intermission in the work of God. Even for you here, as you're in a time of vacancy, 
A time when you have no minister in the congregation, but yet, friends, this morning the work of God keeps going. It continues. It goes on and it goes forward and it goes upwards. This isn't a step backwards. There's no waiting. There's no pause. There is no decline. There's no retreat. All of the events in the history of this congregation, in the history of our denomination as a whole, in the history of the church as a whole, they are all means by which God's purpose is accomplished. And so we have God's call here to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise. Be courageous, child of God. Don't flinch in the work of God. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Take heart and press on. But finally, in the latter part of verse 2, God gives the next instruction. Just the next instruction. Go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. If we were standing where the children of Israel were standing that day, it would have looked to us as it looked to them, as though the whole thing was over. How many times do we read them saying, we should just go back to Egypt? But then God gives them the next instruction. In this verse we have the people and the promise. He says, thou and all this people. Joshua is instructed here to take the lead. Now there will be times ahead in which Israel will not have human leadership. Think of the times of the judges. But on this occasion, at this time, this is the instrument that God chooses to use. He chooses Joshua. He sets Joshua on his feet and he exhorts him to courage and he says, go over this Jordan. But crucially, the instruction is not for Joshua alone. He is only an instrument in order to lead all this people. All this people. That's who's in view here, not Joshua. The whole generation that came out of Egypt, we saw it before, they're now dead. All of them. So many had died. When they came out of Egypt, there were 603,550 men. That precision is important. 603,550 and all of them except two were now dead. And here we are standing on the plains of Moab, standing east of Jordan. And now there are 601,730 men of the next generation standing ready to go into the land of promise. Do you see the point? Almost man for man, God has replaced one generation with the next. Almost man for man. If you're trying to do the calculation, it's 99.7%. God had preserved his congregation. He had kept them. As one generation dies, another generation was being raised up. Even their clothes had been preserved while they wandered in the desert. Deuteronomy 29.5 And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. You see, this is God's work. It's not man's work. And as Christ said, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. There isn't any intermission in God's work and there's no intermission between generations. In one sense we could say there is no such thing as a lost generation. Adam and Eve must have thought that they lost a generation whenever Abel was murdered and their other son was a wretch. They must have thought we've lost a generation, but they hadn't. They hadn't. As the people were dying in the wilderness, Joshua and Caleb must have been watching on, knowing that they wouldn't die, but also knowing that a whole generation is being wiped out. But God was raising up the replacement for those men. There was no lost generation. 
But here we have this immense multitude of people. It's estimated to be more than two million that came out. Whenever you add in the children and the, and the women and the men that were under the age of counting. And here we still have more than two million. And Joshua is told to lead them into the land of Jordan. Every one of them are to be led into the land. There's going to be no one lost. Over a few chapters we find that all the people clean passed over Jordan. But there's also the promise in this verse just as we close. Go over this Jordan unto the land which I do give them even to the children of Israel. Now it's interesting the promise of going into this land of Canaan. This was not a new thing. But never before has Jordan been mentioned as an obstacle to that. The children of Israel were not told that they would come out of Egypt. Wander through the wilderness for 40 years and then have to somehow or other cross the Jordan with millions of people. But it's mentioned now. The first time we read of Jordan is in relation to Lot separating from Abraham. He went to dwell in the plains of Jordan. Then we read of Jacob passing over Jordan. When he's on his way back again, he's reflecting. He says, I came over this Jordan with my staff. But nowhere do we read of God telling the children of Israel that they are going to have to surmount the river Jordan in order to go into the land of promise until now when they're standing looking at it. When it's right in front of them. When it's the next obstacle that they have to overcome. Then God tells them, you need to go through that river. Likewise, we don't read here anywhere at this stage of God saying to them, Oh, and when you get there, you're going to have to fight with the Canaanites. And you're going to have to have the battle with Jericho. And then you're going to lose the battle with Ai. You see, God hasn't told them any of that. God hasn't revealed that to them. He has given them the promise. He has repeated the promise time and time again. He has confirmed the promise. He calls them to believe the promise. But he doesn't reveal the intermediate steps that will take them there. God reveals the next instruction. Now it is the time to go over Jordan. And now he tells them, go over this Jordan. But he encourages them. He strengthens them. He strengthens both Joshua and the people. He gives them this reminder. The land is the land of promise. It's the same promise that God has been working out, accomplishing, putting into practice all along. Not just for these 80 years. From the beginning of the world. This is the promise that God was in the process of fulfilling. All through those 400 years of bondage in Egypt. Oh when the people were crying out by reason of the hard bondage. And they thought they were back at the beginning. God was fulfilling his promise. When the people were mourning, those 30 days of mourning, we had the end of Deuteronomy, 30 days of mourning for Moses, thinking that they're back at the beginning. All along, God has been fulfilling his promise, keeping his covenant. And God says to them, now this is the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. So to return to the question this morning, friends, are we back at the beginning? Is God's work back at the beginning again? We have seen how God replaces instruments. He has different tools. He uses them for different stations at different times. We've seen that with all the picking up and putting down of those instruments, yet God's work never stops and there is no intermission in God's work. But now we see that the end to which it is all working is this. It's the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. I will build my church said Christ this is a great encouragement to the church today yes our numbers are small yes we had more in the past there's also times in the past we had less but here we see that God raises up a congregation to serve him to replace the congregation that went before in fact it's more accurate to say this it's the same congregation the size fluctuates. The size in many ways doesn't matter because God determines the size. 
And he not only preserves his work, he progresses it. Whatever the outward circumstances, friends, whatever it looks like to us, God's work is going forward. It's always going forward. It's never going back. Let me answer the question in clear terms. We are not back at the beginning then. We have not even retreated. We have, not, we have lost nothing. All that has gone before us, the ups as well as the downs, the times of reform that have taken the cause of Christ forward, the times of division that seem to have taken us back, all of that has brought us to where we are now. And all of that has prepared us for what is to come. The church of Jesus Christ then is not in retreat. There are struggles now. There are battles ahead. But all along, God is fulfilling his covenant promises. Amen. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's stand for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee and praise thee this morning that thou hast been a God to us. That thou hast seen fit to choose out a people unto thyself for thine own honour and glory, for the sake of Christ our Redeemer. And that thou art building thy church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that we will go forward in thy name. And even when the enemy comes in like a flood thou hast promised, that the Spirit of God will raise up a standard against them. O Lord, how we pray that thou would not only continue to raise up the standard in this day, but Lord, that thou would give us days of increase. Give us heart, Lord. Give us courage. Help us to press on and to press forwards, believingly, with the eye of faith, that we would see, Lord, the cause of Christ go forward. No matter what the outward circumstances, no matter how low the physical, Lord, might we look upwards in the spiritual. Oh Lord, and might we see again days of reviving, and might we see again days of increase, days of passing over, days of victory in the battle, days of coming out of bondage. But oh Lord, in all of it, might we, might we go on believing. Oh Lord, continue with us, we pray. And take us out as we worship thee in song. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll sing in closing from Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And we'll sing in this psalm from verse 3 to the end of verse 9. Psalm 37, verse 3. Set thou thy trust upon the Lord, and be thou doing good. And so thou in the land shalt dwell, and verily have food. Delight thyself in God. He'll give thine heart's desire to thee. Thy way to God commit. Him trust. It bring to pass shall he. And so on down to the end of verse 9. Psalm 37 from verses 3 to 9. <coughs> Set thy trust upon the Lord, and in doing good,
It's time for prayer. Our gracious God and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time spent in Thy courts today. We pray that Thou would draw near to us now as we part, that Thou would put Thy blessing upon us, that Thy word would enrich us and sanctify us and go after us and find us where we are. And Lord, that Thou would encourage us and lead us on with Thyself. Help us, Lord, throughout this day to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We pray that Thou would bring us back again this evening where once again we will seek to worship Thee in spirit and in truth. Continue with us now. Take us to our homes in safety. And these things we ask, praying for Thy blessing to be upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.